Welcome to Recess Tonight. I am Rob. This is Alan eating a mandarin orange. Good, good. Pretty confident that day one of podcasting school, they said, don't eat stuff, don't chew bubble gum. Um, and you've broken both of those rules uh, throughout the, our duration. I took kindergarten twice. Yeah, that, that story checks out. Okay, uh, so today I'm really stoked. We have a, a lovely guest, a wonderful guest, a funny guest who is also um, full of badassery in the world of trauma. Um, her name is Nicole Cook, and Nicole is a clinical nurse specialist in trauma care in, in, in the America. And Nicole is awesome on Twitter. I would say she's a very funny person. She also, um, fun fact... We'll get to the clinical reasons and why she's important, but um, she owns a new owner of a full onesie shark outfit, which is pretty impressive. I'll give you credit. Um, but yeah, Nicole, uh, welcome to the show. We're really stoked hey. that you're going to be here. <laughs> um, that intro could not have been any better had I written it myself. Thank you. You did write it, Nicole. That. I'm reading it like from the page that you told me to write it from. Oh, you're not supposed to tell people. That's really awkward now. We're just... <laughs> but Nicole, like, honestly, can you give us like a bit of a rundown of who you are? Because you deserve um, some serious props for yeah. your, your work. And it's impressive. And it it's just best to make Alan look like crap. So can you go ahead? Oh, okay. No, I can totally make Alan look like crap. Um, so yeah, so I've been a nurse a little over 18 years. I have done um, med surge, cardiothoracic step down, doing LVADs and double lung heart transplants. Um, I worked uh, critical care uh, doing um, surgery trauma and neurosurgery ICU. And the predominance of my nursing time was spent in the emergency department at a level one trauma center. Um, and for the past couple of years, I have been working with our trauma services department as a trauma clinical nurse specialist. Um, I'm, you know, I've, I've got the sort of, you know, CEN and CRN, CCRN and TCRN. Um, I've got um, a couple of articles that have been published, one in the JEN, and then really, really excited about this. Our team just got something published in injury on entitled CO2 in the pre-hospital setting, which um, if you, I just, I could talk about end title, I don't know, for like 20 years straight and probably never, ever talk about it enough. Um, yeah, let me think. What else? Um, my Twitter account is uh, definitely hysterical, probably the highlight of my professional career. Um, and I did just buy a shark onesie off of Amazon. And I'm an amateur mixologist. Uh, pretty proud of that. May leave nursing to open a bar. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. <laughs> Your, your brand manager is also um, wanting us to mention that you're a sizable hockey fan for all the Canadian um, nurses out there. She has cred. She, she knows oh. she actually knows hockey. So don't worry. She's good. Um, so <laughs> I am not just a uh, puck funny. Thank you very much. So. <laughs> uh, Alan, I, don't, don't you sometimes wish we had like sound effects of like, mer, 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 like when oh, she talked about like, CO, CO2 oh. and stuff. Like Ross from friends in that one episode. That's correct. You're showing your age, my friend. That's cool. Um, okay. So Nicole equals smart. Nicole equal good. Nicole equal shark. That's good. Um, so let's let's talk about stuff and things. Alain, do you want to uncontinue? Yeah. 
A 24-year-old man uh, arrives into your emergency department with a decreased LOC. Now, his history is significant that he was in a high-speed single-vehicle um, motor vehicle collision where he hit a meridian and was ejected from the car through the windshield and was found approximately 20 feet from the vehicle. At the scene, the paramedics found the person awake but with an altered level of consciousness and was not moving their arms and legs realizing that the hospital is nearby they scooped him up and rushed him to you and he's in your emergency department so let's talk all things trauma specifically to the neurological system insert sound effect here hey. i don't know what that was sorry that was that was just sad actually no, really you, you continue though <laughs> Okay, so sorry guys, that's not on my CV. I apologize. Now, Nicole, tell us when you hear this mechanism, what kind of differentials jump out to you regarding the brain and the cord? Um, so yeah, any ejection usually equals badness, right? Like ejection and then multiple rollover are generally like the two that really kind of get my goat a little bit from a neurologic aspect. Um, and you know. Not a lot of report from the scene, probably a short scoop time, right? So they're here. Um, I worry, you know, decreased LOC and, you know, getting a Glasgow Coma Scale is one of those fun things because I might get a Glasgow Coma Scale. You might get a Glasgow Coma Scale. Really, what does that mean? If I tell you I've got a 13 and you tell me we've got a 13, do we, are we both worried about the same things, right? Like, um, really, the one that I'm the most worried about is motor right? Because eyes can be altered for a bunch of other things. Um, <clears throat> you know, voice or, you know, responsiveness can be altered for a bunch of other things. But man, the minute you tell me they're posturing or something like that, your motor score is the one that is most associated with your poor outcomes. So if you're going to tell me a GCS, I'm going to, I'm going to want more than the actual number. I'm going to want to know kind of what that breakdown is and which, which one of those three components actually really sucks the most. You know, it's so funny you bring that up with the Glasgow Coma Scale. Here's another Alan's uh, soapbox here. I went back and actually read the original paper. I think it was from like the 50s or 60s or something like that. And the Glasgow Coma Scale was never intended to be just one number. It was supposed to be that this is the patient's Glasgow Coma Scale, E2, V1, M4. It was always to be read out like that. But we just say GCS 15, right. everyone is in head trauma. Anyway, uh, that was just Alan's soapbox out there. But anyway. Uh, so Rob, so So Rob, you were a medic, so you saw this before in the past, um, and then you transitioned your career to an emerge nurse. So when you hear the story, how, how did you organize your uh, primary survey? Like, how did you get on top of this patient? Like primary in the field? Sorry, so pri primary in the emergency department. Sure. So for me, primary service guy, I'm concerned. I'm with Nicole a thousand percent on that motor score. I'm really concerned about that because that's actually going to dictate how I'm setting up this feller in the trauma bay, whether I'm setting up for load and go or whether I'm setting him up to, to hang around for a bit. Right. I mean, I don't want him getting comfortable in my emerge. I want him getting comfortable in a operating room is where I want him getting comfortable. Um, and so I'm going to be setting up for, for movement. We've talked about this a million times, setting up the portable monitor as opposed to the bedside monitor and, and not getting too comfy and getting into a chair and churning and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of where my brain goes with that. But Nicole, I mean, when, 
I think one subsect of this I really am interested in from your perspective is what about the small site, right? Like we can get into the cool stuff. Yeah. Like let's drill an ICP bolt in this guy and all that kind of cool stuff. That's really sexy, fun things. But like, what are the basics that you are teaching on a daily basis in, in your role? Yeah. And I think that's really important to recognize. And um, one of the things um, I lecture about a lot and that I use it as an example is how are you going to nurse in the zombie apocalypse? Like, are you going to have toys? Are you going to have bells? Are you going to have whistles? Are you going to have a monitor? You're going to be extremely limited. And then, you know, this is, this is kind of the way we have to think because we get really reliant on our cardiac monitor and all of our toys and our tools and really the essentials of nursing and the essentials of trauma nursing are the absolute basics, no matter where you work, no matter how big your shop is it absolutely goes back to the basics because the basics are what is at the end of the day will potentially save your patient. But if you miss the essentials, that is what will kill your patient. And so that's what I want people to remember. And it's the little things like, you know, and we could go through the whole algorithm of airway and breathing and circulation, right? Because without airway, breathing and circulation, you have no disability, you have no brain if you don't take care of those three things first. So I get for this intents and purposes, let's say we've optimized airway and breathing and circulation, right? And get to, you know, kind of the basics of this. You know, if, if you're in a tiny little shop, if you're in a critical access emergency department, you are, you know, like it's fixed wing flights to get somebody out of your place. Let's talk about that. Like absolute worst case scenario, right? Like you, the doc is asleep in a shed behind your hospital, like the radiology tech has to ride a moose up to your, up to their. She's know, been reading the Canadian that. literature. Clearly that's good. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you're very limited. And what can you do in those circumstances? So yes, optimize your oxygenation. One episode of one episode of hypoxemia can absolutely cause detrimental outcomes, not only in your TBI patients, but your spinal cord patients. Um, and the same thing with circulation. One episode of hypotension can cause, you know, th the way I kind of encapsulate this is, are you going to be the difference between your patient walking out after a neurologic injury, or are you going to be what causes a trach, a peg, and a sniff for a skilled nursing facility, right? If you really want to, and the reason I, I tell it that way, um, if you guys will allow me, I, I like to share the times I've screwed up. And we I did have a, a, yeah, it's, I think, I think that's the way we make ourselves vulnerable and we teach, right? Like, Hey, Hey, look, the awesome llama with the really cool Twitter account who loves hockey and has a shark onesie also screwed up once as a nurse. So you too, my friends can absolutely make an error. Um, but yeah, years and years ago, I had, I had a, a neurotrauma patient that was brought to me and you know, um, what happens after your patient gets intubated, everybody disappears and you're by yourself, right? Foley and CAT scan and MRI and my ABG needs to be drawn and my labs have hemolyzed and have to be drawn again. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? And I go and I push the button on the monitor and I go around doing my things. And then, uh, you know, somebody calls, do I know their allergies? Dude is intubated. No, no friend. I do not but, you know, let me do some things. <clears throat> and then, the, you know, and I go back and my monitor has not run a pressure. So what do I do? I push the button again, because 
ta-da, that's what we do. We love a monitor. So I push the button again and uh, I go call respiratory for my ABG and I go call and fight with the lab about my hemolyzed specimen. And I go find a Foley buddy. Did you guys ever have to have a buddy to put in a Foley for my sterile, right? We didn't have buddies for that. No, hard no. Oh yeah. No, we had Foley buddies to watch our sterile. Yeah. Technique. It was great. Um, So anyway, so I get all done. Yeah, it was, it didn't help. So we stopped doing that. Um, but I go back and my monitor still has not run. So what I do, I push the button and then I watch the monitor because if I watch it, it'll run this time. Right. And you guys can all hear this in your brain, right? It's like, tick, 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 right. As it's deflating. Tick, tick. And I'm just sitting there. Cause I apparently have all the time in the world to watch this monitor go. It's like, tick, 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 tick. And then it gets down really low. And then the algorithm and the machine goes, well, gee, they must be hypertensive. Let me inflate up to 220, right? So then it goes all the way up. And then it's tick, 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 tick. And y'all, I mean, what was that? What was that guy's pressure when it was done running, right? Not yeah, it was enough. 60. Okay. It was, it was not enough. So, and I, I don't know this guy's, I don't, I don't know the outcome. I don't know if what happened adversely affected him or not. But the way I teach this is you don't want to be the difference between walking out and a trach and a peg in a skilled nursing facility. You want to optimize their care. You want to prevent secondary injury. And that's what we're doing is we're preventing secondary injury by optimal oxygenation and optimal um, hemodynamics. And the quandary in that in trauma is in your trauma patients, we always teach permissive hypotension, right? A systolic of 90 makes us happy. We don't want to pop the clot. But now you're in this weird dilemma, right? So do I keep them from exsanguinating by keeping their pressure low, but then I malperfuse their brain? Or do I jack up their pressure, perfuse their brain, and make them bleed out? And that's like, that's an individual question. Each patient needs to be looked at differently. But I'm going to tell you what, if you optimally perfuse their brain and then they die, then what do you do with that, right? Like, it's... Exactly. Right. That's a huge ethical discussion. That's, that's, that's one of the fun things of neurotrauma. And by fun, I mean, not fun, but it's one of those things to discuss. You have to discuss it with your team. What is our goals? We have to optimize their bleeding status and then we can address their brain. So that's like the big, that's my big first thing. Optimize your oxygenation, optimize your blood pressure. Any shop anywhere can do this to the best of their abilities. I think my second thing though, and you guys, you know, I'm sure you guys have some strong feelings on this too, is repeat neuroassessments, especially, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and how much they, they get done or don't get done. Yeah, you guys feeling strongly you about do it that? Once, you do it once and you chart it and you walk away. Am I, is, that, is that how that works? No, that, I think I might be wrong. I think we might need like a couple more Oh, okay, times. okay, never mind. I don't, yeah, okay. Good to know. Yeah, so really... Yeah. And this is the way I kind of teach it too, is like, it, you know, in the emerge, right. I'm calling it emerge now. We don't call it emerge in the States, but I guess in Canada, write a moose and call it the emerge. Is what do y'all what call happens? it in, in the U S in my, in my place, we call it the ED or the ER, but I like emerge and I'm going to actually make that like a national movement, uh, down here in the States. <laughs> um, I think the other thing we need to remember now that I just went off on that tangent and I'm trying to remember where I was going with that. Oh yeah. So neurochecks, you don't just, I mean, let's be honest in the emerge, we throw like a toe pain sometimes on a full monitor and set that pressure to cycle Q30, right? Cause we're just, yes. Okay. That's what this is. I, I hear people nodding. Um, 
we do multiple vitals because we trend them. We don't always just care so much about the one set of numbers. We care about how they change over time. I want people to think about their neurochecks, specifically their Glasgow Coma Scale, broken down into three parts, right, Alan? And their pupils, I want them to think about those as their brain vitals. Because really, if you think about it, those are legitimately kind of the vital signs of your brain. Your, your heart rate and your blood pressure tell you from a cardiovascular perspective how you're doing. Your GCS and your pupils tell you how your brain is doing. And if they start to look terrible, then maybe we are not doing the right things and there's something else we need to do. And I think that is, it sounds really simple and really silly, but that's a gap that I see is repeat neurochecks, especially in busy EDs, busy shops, things are going on. And especially if that patient's just now been intubated and they're just kind of chill and they're out on propofol or whatever you guys, you know, use, um, you might have to go wake them up to get, a decent neuro assessment. And let's be perfectly honest, how tough is that in an ED? Is that optimal? Is that always something that's the easiest thing to do? And so depending on your shop and what you've got going on, um, that's a discussion you've got to have with the provider, either with neurosurgery or whoever's admitting that patient, hey, do I need to wake them up every hour to get a proper set of, of neurochecks? Now, God forbid, if they're in your place that long, right? Because if we're talking a critical axis, little tiny place, like somebody, like somebody needs to be out back, like winding up the propeller and like, let's, let's go. Cause we do not need to be there that long, but heaven forbid, if it's a snowstorm, something's happened, something's crazy. You can't get transport. They're stuck in your department and they're not transported out. You have got to accurately monitor those neurochecks, that Glasgow's coma scale, those pupils, and you've got to tell somebody if they become terrible, because that's the difference between continued monitor in the ICU versus an operative approach. That's the difference between walking out of the hospital or a trach, a peg in a skilled nursing facility, right? It's those little things that we can miss. And it sounds really silly and redundant, but those are the things I sometimes see have the biggest impact or impacts in our patients and their outcomes. Sorry, I think that's so really, I think that's really important. No, no, that's a great, that's a great one to be on because I think it's really important to note those little things make huge differences, right? It's the little pieces yeah. of your game that you're cleaning up. It's the 1% better kind of every shift, that thing that you're focusing on because you get to yeah. get better. So I, I have a question. I'm sure Alan has something to say about the sedation stuff because I know he's passionate about that. But there's one question I have for you. How often are you doing cranial nerve exams and peripheral nerve exams on patients? Do you find or are you? Um, are, are people like like the the people, the royal we of people? The people, the people. Probably not as much as probably could be, right? Because it's one thing, right? If you if and and it depends on how much you're fighting an ICP on your patient, right? If you've got them sedated and happy, and their ICP is happy, and then neurosurgery or the provider wants you to do a good neuro exam, which means turning off their sedation. And the minute you turn off their sedation, their ICP starts to rise. How long are you going to leave them unsedated is a good question, right? <clears throat> so I think what I find a lot, and you guys might be seeing stuff different, is I don't think a lot of neuro exams go in deep into a lot of the peripheral nerve stuff and a lot of the cranial nerve stuff, and, and which unfortunately sometimes then that stuff gets caught, you know, when they're extubated and they, they come out and they're awake and, um, wow, your eye looks a little funny. Um, you know, that, right, like things don't look quite right. But in the moment, 
you know, say you found some cranial nerve dysfunction on someone with a, a pretty severe TBI, is it going to change your management to find it that early? And it's probably not because you're going to continue to optimize care. And unfortunately, that's a lot of what sometimes neuro is, is we're optimizing care, supportive care, really hoping that this gray mess of goo inside of our head is going to tolerate what we're doing and is going to come through this just fine because sometimes it does really great. And then sometimes we do an amazing job and it's like, yeah, you know, and you'll have two different people, like two patients, the exact same. And they just, they will have completely different outcomes no matter how much you optimize their care. So I think that's the other crazy thing about neuro is it's just like, man, sometimes you're just beating up against a door, you know, optimizing this patient. And they're just like, And that's, and that's frustrating for nursing too, right? Because you do everything you can and they can still have a potentially terrible outcome. And, and how grating is that on your soul, right? That's neuro is a hard specialty. Really, really is. Yeah. Heads are heads and cords are certainly difficult. This is a perfect segue because let me give you a progression of the case study here. So um, 30 minutes. So uh, they arrived to the ED. A was okay. B, so no catastrophic hemorrhage. A is okay. B is okay-ish. So they just put him, uh, him on 15 liters. And C put in a couple of large bore IVs and uh, went direct over to the truth scanner or the donut of truth, as some people call it. And the donut of truth. Yeah, the donut of truth does not show any uh, intracranial hemorrhage, but it does show um, uh, early swelling and potentially early okay. loss of gray-white differentiation. And I'm hoping that you could share a little bit about that with our, uh, our listeners, because I think that's an important piece for nurses to hear. Uh, that way they can expect the type mm -hmm. of care afterwards. And also uh, the CT scan shows a step deformity and fracture of C3 uh, with, with retropulsion. Uh, so, so the patient gets okay. back to your trauma room. And this is what happens okay. in real life, despite if you work in a small center or in a, in a Death Star. After they come back from the scanner and the dust settles, it's you. It's the nurse and the patient. It's this is what you've got here. Yeah. So walking us through our very familiar ABCDs, um, how, okay, first, mm -hmm. number one, how, can you please describe the significance of what gray, what loss of gray, white differentiation means to our listeners? Okay. Yeah. And explain so, to me like I'm a five-year-old. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me work on that. So, um, so the brain is gray. And then sometimes it's less gray. Um, so when you're looking at a CAT scan of a brain, and it's kind of hard to say, I'll do my best to describe it without the pictures, but you'll see these lovely different tonal shades of gray and white. And they occur in a very expected pattern, depending on the areas of the brain, kind of the sulci and the different you know, ridges and things. And it, it kind of makes this lovely pattern that we expect. Um, it's, there's a gray-white differentiation between the areas. As the brain becomes ischemic, is damaged, is injured, and becomes edematous, those layers of color on a CAT scan will change. And it, it you can watch it on a progression of CAT scans if you get multiple CAT scans. It just turns to this dark, muddy 
And obviously this dark muddy gray doesn't exactly correlate to the color of the brain. It's just the way the, the gradations happen on a CAT scan. But the brain itself will just become this dark monotonish kind of meh mess, right? And that just forebodes a lot of terribleness, right? If it's blood in the brain, if there's a subdural or a subarachnoid um, or an epidural that we can go in and evacuate potentially if it's operative, that's great. That's fantastic. Surgically, there's nothing you can do for cerebral edema, which is what that loss of gray-white matter differentiation uh, portends. It is just optimal care at that point. But once again, that goes back to our job as nurses is to prevent that secondary injury. Now, those brain cells are just dying in there potentially, right? They're, they're, they're getting, stuff's getting swole, as we say in the South, and swole tissue does not get perfused very well. And when those tissues don't get perfused well, they swole and die. They push on the next tissues next to them. They swole and die. And it becomes this cascade effect within the brain. Um, And so even though their CAT scan is negative for intracranial hemorrhage does not mean you're out of the woods. These are actually a little more frightening of a, of a brain injury. And you almost, you know, depending on where you are, you may need an MRI to differentiate if there's diffuse axonal injury as well, um, which does not show up on CAT scan, but you can kind of get an inkling of maybe that's what's happening based on their presentation and the fact that they have early loss of that those beautiful colors on the CAT scan, but the MRI will actually show concern for diffuse axonal injury. And that's basically short story. That's just basically tearing apart of the brain tissue at a cellular microscopic level. And that's usually due to like a multiple rollover type mechanism of injury. So just because the brain CAT scan is negative for a bleed does not mean your patient is okay. They actually are a little scarier to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you have to highlight there. They are far more scarier if they're, if you don't see blood, you know, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a reverse feeling. It's kind of odd, right? It's you kind of want yeah. blood because you can evacuate it, but if there's oh, no yeah. blood. Then it makes you even more, Oh my God. Oh my God. What do oh, we yeah. Like your cat scan and you're just like, it's this moment of disappointment. Like, man, there's no bleed. Oh, hell. <laughs> I should say the loss of gray white differentiation may not occur immediately, but I do, but we had you on the show, Nicole. So I had, we had to get your wisdom on this for a little bit, selfishly speaking for me to hear and learn a bit more about it. And that's where we'll cut on episode number one with Nicole Cook. We'll pick it up next week. Where we'll talk more things about neurotrauma. Join us next time. Thanks so much.